0: Good morning. We have been in a series starting this fall that has taken us from uh, Genesis all the way to Revelation. And so through Advent, we have been finalizing this ending story, this last act in the book of Revelation. And so flip over, if you would, to Revelation 19. And if you would also, I'd invite you to stand with me as we read it. In an Eastern context, you always stood when you read it. One reason is because it distinguished your words from the word of God. And so it was a way of respect to say, God, your words are above all others. And so we stand when we read it. And what else we did was we recommitted ourselves to God in the form of a prayer called the Shema, found in Deuteronomy 6. It was a prayer done with passion. It was to say, God, with everything in me, as we hear your very words, we want to recommit who we are and what we're about to you. And so they said this prayer with passion. So I know it's a sleepy New Year's Eve morning, but let's say this prayer with passion. So say it after me. Hero Israel. Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord, God. The Lord, alone. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Amen. Amen. These are the very words of God, Revelation 19. After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgments He has condemned the great prostitute who has corrupted the earth by her adulteries. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. And again they shouted, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. The 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne. And they cried, amen, hallelujah. Then a voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all you his servants who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder, shouting, Hallelujah, for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear, And the fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. And the angel said to me, Blessed, write this, Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb, he added. These are the words of God. You may be seated. Now as part of my job... I get to visit and meet with a lot of different people. I get to invited into a lot of people's homes to meet and to get to know them. And one of my favorite things I like to do whenever I go into somebody's home is look for that classic wedding photo. It's always my favorite. It's either, exactly, it's, fitting, it's sitting on a mantle, it's hanging somewhere, and I love looking the house over looking for this wedding photo if they're married, and, and the reason I love it is because there always is a great story that comes out of the photo, right? Either they've got the puffy sleeves or some sort of style that was definitely not in style anymore, or some story about what happened at the wedding always comes up, and so it's a really always a great conversation starter to say, all right, let me see the wedding photo. I say, come on. pull it. I know it's hiding. If I don't see it apparently, I'm like, I know it's hiding somewhere. Like, let's, let's see it. Let's get it over with. I, I want to see it. I, I just love to look and, and to reminisce with people about their wedding day. And so not to hold out on myself. Here is Molly and I uh, about 11 years ago on our, uh, on our wedding day. Now, when I look at the picture, I think of two things. Number one, who let that child get married? Like, what? Oh, sweet baby, Brian. Like... <laughs> You're so cute and totally not ready for any of life uh, right now. But somehow, uh, Molly's parents let me marry her. And so uh, I think that. The other thing I think of is why didn't someone hold me down and cut my hair? It ju- it's like a mop is on this thing. And I'm just like, oh, man. Like I look at it now. I'm like, would you please, would somebody have spoken into my life and had an intervention and say you're going you're gonna to want this cut. You're going to want to see pictures 10, 11 years from now of you with nice cut hair. But I didn't, so there it is. That's, that is our wedding. And when I think back on our wedding and when I ask about different people's wedding, it's really interesting to hear how they navigated all the different customs and sort of traditions. Because weddings have, in our culture, like every culture, has these uh, things, these, these settings and these traditions and these Things you expectations you have to do and some people hold to them hard and some people don't and it's just interesting to see how different people navigated all those different things that you ought to do at a wedding. Now one of the jokes that came out of our wedding is that Molly's mom is super detail-oriented. She does not want to make a mistake. She wants to think through every little thing and so as she began to plan for the wedding and prepare, she began to like photocopy things and had uh, different contracts and things that go on and She had this binder and at first, the binder was like this, and then it was like this, and then it was like this and finally by the end she had gotten one of these like three-inch binders and she'd walk in with it and it was blue. I still remember it. She'd slam like, boom, and she'd like open it up. She's like, all right, what are we we talking about now? And we had this, so I always have this image of her carrying around the giant blue binder for our wedding because there's just so much, right? There's so many things you have to keep uh, account for. There's so many traditions and favors and what are we doing with flowers and all sorts of customs that we have in our culture about how to do a proper wedding. And some people want to hold to that, and some people want to buck that system, but certainly we know and we recognize the different things that go into a wedding. But one of the favorite things we did at our wedding was um, we gave everyone sparklers or candles or some sort of light, um, and when we were ready to go, when the, when the, the wedding was over, they lined up, all of our people lined up the sides and lit these sparklers. And what was cool about it is that it was, it was in Vermont, it was the dead of night, we were like in the woods of Vermont, so everything was absolutely pitch dark except for these sparklers and these candles that just lit up the night. And we got to walk kind of through it as everyone celebrated and cheered as we got in the car to leave the wedding. And it's one of those memories that kind of is grained in me as, as one of the things that I think about when we do it. It's this light that was, that was lighting up the night. They gathered with sparklers and candles lit. I'll never forget that. Now, our passage this morning, one of the final scenes of the Bible— places us at a wedding feast. And just like us, the world of the Bible had its own customs and traditions and steps and preparations that went into a wedding. And what I want to do this morning is I want to explore some of those customs and steps because I think you're going to find that as we understand how the, Bible, the world of the Bible did a wedding, we're going to see some great insight into what Jesus is up to because Jesus is inviting you to a wedding. Jesus is inviting you to a wedding. So let's take a look at a few of them now. If you have your insert, you can grab that from the bulletin. We'll be walking through that first. And the first one is this. There was these steps to a marriage. Kind of like what we do with an engagement, and there's sort of this season of getting ready for it, and then you have the ceremony. This was very uh, the same. This was uh, typical of a first century wedding as well. And so there was sort of this uh, betrothal period, that happened and betrothal prepared you for the marriage. The betrothal prepared the marriage. Now the first part of a marriage custom was the betrothal where you kind of figured out and you, you talked with the other side of the family and you gave these and you set sort of these obligations and the expectations of what was going to go into it. We actually talked a little bit about this already earlier in the, in the, uh, in the series. What would happen is, is that the future groom would take a cup of wine, and he would offer it to the bride, or the bride-to-be, and he would say, this cup, I offer you. And in turn, he was saying, I love you, and I offer you my life. Will you marry me? Sort of like what we do when we get on one knee, this is how they formally engaged the wedding process, kind of started the wedding process, is with a cup. And it was given to the bride and he'd say, this cup I offer you, in a sense saying, will you marry me? Now, if she drank the cup, she accepted the proposal and they began their life together and they began the preparations for their life. And at this point, if she did accept the cup, then a bride price would begin to be negotiated because no father-in-law is giving a bride away for free. Now this doesn't necessarily happen anymore in our culture, but I think it's actually kind of a cool thing, right? So the, the, the two sides of the family, particularly the groom, would negotiate with the father-in-law, and they would set a price for the girl. They'd say, all right, this is what she's worth to me. This is the bride price. And then the groom would then have to, or the groom-to-be would have to then, either from his uh, estate or it, sometimes it was even service to the father-in-law, he would have to work in order to earn the right to marry the bride. We read stories of this like in Genesis 29, when Jacob has to work 14 years to finally marry his love, Rachel. And the text says, they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. Aw, isn't that cute? Who says the Bible isn't romantic? 14 years, and yet it felt like nothing to him because he was so in love with Rachel. Now, in, this, in the rabbinic literature, we call this first part of the marriage custom the kidyashin, which means to set apart. Because literally at this point, what had happened is the woman had been spoken for. She had been set apart. And once the bride price was being paid off or being paid, she was now formally, legally spoken for. Meaning, even though they were in their engagement period, it had the whole legal force of marriage. And it would, only, it would require divorce at that point, even though they weren't formally married yet. It would require divorce in order for the two to be separated. She was Kidyashin, She was set apart at that point. And after this, both the bride and the bridegroom had their own preparations to get ready for the wedding. They had to go get ready to be married, and so there there was this extended period of time between the proposal, the Kidyashin, and now the wedding ceremony that would happen six, nine, twelve months later. And they both had these, these, these responsibilities and this, these preparation, and so they would literally then separate. They would go their separate ways to go get ready, and they would not see each other again until the day of their wedding. And so they had to be ready, and they had to get prepared. Now, this is actually the setting. As we're talking about Christmas and it's Christmas Eve, this is actually the setting for Mary and Joseph that we find in Matthew 1. This is what it reads in Matthew 1. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph. She had been kiddushin. She had been set apart. She had been pledged to Joseph. And so Mary and Joseph are in this preparation phase. They are not together, they are separated because he's going to make his preparations and she is now in the midst of making her preparations. But remember, she is legally bound to Joseph. Joseph is either in the midst of paying the bride price or has already made the bride price and set it and has paid it. And so now she is set apart. And so she's pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. It's a hard uh, excuse to try to give to Joseph. Yeah, the Holy Spirit. Okay. Because Joseph was her husband and was faithful to the law, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, so he had in mind to divorce her Quietly. Again, they hadn't consummated the marriage. They hadn't been married yet, but they had the legal force of marriage. He had gone away to prepare to be her husband. And in his eyes, and in particularly the community's eyes, this was the ultimate rejection. This was the ultimate backstab. This is the ultimate sort of t- totally turn your back on everything that you were meant to do. How could Mary have done something like this? And that's one of the most powerful parts of Mary's story is that she had been set apart. She had been legally bound, but she was pregnant. And the shame and the disgrace attached to her would have been overwhelming. The whore who betrayed her family and her husband. But if you remember the story, and if you remember the story of the woman who was caught in adultery in John chapter 8, you know that it wasn't just Mary's reputation that was on the line. Her very life was on the line too. That's why Jesus needs, or that's why God needs to send an angel to Joseph. But like, listen, I know this is like crazy, and I know you're actually needing to follow the law, and by law you need to divorce Mary, but we're doing something here. She did not commit adultery. This is not what you think it is. But this sort of marriage custom is right at the heart of the, of the Christmas story. A girl rejected by her community. A girl who's looking over her shoulder for her very life who's accepted this call to bear the Savior of the world. And a husband who's willing to take her and be her husband despite the fact that she's pregnant. It's a powerful, moving thing when you put it sort of in that first century context. So where is Joseph in all of this? We sort of know what Mary is. Mary's there. Where is Joseph in the story? Well, he's doing what any bridegroom would do. He's preparing a place for her. The bridegroom prepares a place. The betrothal prepares the marriage. The bridegroom then prepares a place. You see, what a young man would do is he would then go home after this kid yashin. He would go home and he would go to his father's house and he would prepare a place for them. The son would build a new house onto his father's existing one. And as generations married and built houses onto the original one, they created this complex housing complex called an insula. We have a picture here for you, sort of a, a visual here to help you do this. This is an insula. Now an insula, again, is sort of, it's not one house, it's multiple houses. It's like a housing unit. What you did as a father, if he, didn't ha- if he, was, if he was the original, he might have built an original house. And then when he had sons, his sons would go out into the world, he, they'd find their wives, and then they would return to his house and they would build a house onto his house. And so you could tell how, how powerful or how long uh, a family had been there by how big their insula was. These insulas, if they had been three or four generations long, could get actually quite big and complex because you kept building on to the father's uh, estate. You kept building on to the father's house. And so what a groom would do is that he would, he would, he would, set a a woman apart, he'd set his bride apart, and then he would go to his father's house to prepare a place for her. And he would build, and he would, he put together, and he'd try to make it as nice as he could because only the father could approve of his work, right? A dad would not allow the son to come home and then do some shoddy work onto his house, something that's just about to fall apart, and then say, all right, dad, I'm done. No, no, the dad got to decide when you are done and when you're not done. And so a a son might build onto a house and then say, all right, dad, I'm done. And the dad would walk through and say, you're not done yet, son. I have not given you approval yet. And so he'd make some corrections and he'd fix some things up and he'd make sure everything's... And then the father would come through again and be like, you're close. You're so close, but you're not there yet. So the son would, again, put more preparation and he'd be preparing this house for him. He'd be preparing a house. And then finally, one day, the father would say, the time, the season has come. You may now go get your bride. And he would go. Now, what's cool about this is that this is the the neat part about it, because this is where the festival takes place. And so what a son would do is that he would gather his buddies. He'd gather his his bridal party. he'd, He'd gather his groomsmen, so to speak. And he would go to the village that she was at. She was there. But she, they would go at night. The custom was is they would go. They wouldn't go in the middle of the day. They'd wait till night. They'd wait till sundown. And they'd enter the village. And they would have, they would have uh, instruments. And they would have trumpets. And they would blow this shofar, which is a, an, a, is a uh, first century trumpet. They'd blow this shofar to start to wake everybody up in the village. Kind of like your kids on Christmas morning. Like they come in just it's time, right? They'd walk into this village and they would blow the shofar. And then they would play their instruments and there would be singing and there would be dancing and they would all come with torches or candles. And it would light up the night. And there was this this grand procession that would come as they walked to the door of the bride to see if she was ready. And so if you were a villager in there, you would know, because these villages weren't so that that big, and so you would know when one of your own was set apart. You would know if one of your own was being ready, and you actually had to be ready yourself because if you wanted to go to the party, you had to be ready at any point for the bridegroom to show up in the middle of the night and blow his horn and say, it's time to party. And so you'd hear that shofar, you'd hear that trumpet blow. And you'd wake up and you'd go, the bridegroom has come. And you'd get all ready and you'd get ready and then you'd join them. You'd get your candles, you'd get your light and you would join the party as the bridegroom came for his bride. And then you would perse- process back to his house for the ceremony and the feast. They would gather all of this time with all the music and all the festivities right at sundown to get the bride. Has anyone ever seen um Fiddle Around the Roof? Does anyone seen Fiddle on the Roof? They actually depict this this whole scene, this wedding scene in the fiddle of the roof. So if you haven't seen it, take a look at the screen. Just look for a second at this uh, at this depiction. They gathered with candles lit. The bridegroom has come. Now, while the fiancé was preparing a new home, the bride-to-be remained at her parents' house, preparing for the wedding herself. During this time, she was known in the community. We talked about how a community would know that a uh, bride-to-be was there. And so all along the community, she would be known as the one who was bought with a price. They'd actually call her that. Hello, one who's been bought with a price. She also had a wedding party too. Not just the groom. She had her bridesmaids, attendants that would help her get ready, which included ritual bathings and anointings and clothing with special garments. But the most important preparation for them was to keep their lamps and candles lit. Because the bride prepared herself. The betrothal prepared the, the wedding, the marriage. The bridegroom prepared the place. And the bride prepared herself. Like I said, with these ritual bathings, anointings, clothing, but most importantly, they needed to keep their lamps and candles lit. And the reason was, is that when the groom returned at night, he would look for the lamp to see where she was. He needed to make sure in the dark of night, because again, when we're in Williamsville or in Buffalo, the glow of the lights, you can see things. But when there's none of that, you walk into a village and it's pitch black. And you needed to know where your bride was. And so the attendants... And the bride, their main job was to make sure they had enough oil in their lamps. They needed to make sure they had enough candles lit so that at any time when the bridegroom showed up, he would know where they were and he would know that she was ready. And so she had to keep it. And she would wait months, six months, nine months, or even longer for her fiancé to return. And while she knew that it was her season, She did not know the exact time or date of when the bridegroom would come for her. And the key here is that the wise bridal partner was well prepared for the groom's arrival. The wedding feast at the bridegroom's house was the high point of the celebration, and to miss that was to miss everything. If she was prepared, the couple would see each other for the first time, and a crown, he would bring, the the bridegroom would bring a crown and place it on her head or a wreath and place it on her head and the two bridal parties would join together and process with the lights aglow to the new house, the new place for the wedding ceremony and the feast that would last a week. Talk about a, a good party. And not only that, after the feast, it was custom for the couple to live in the new house for a year without any work or taxing responsibilities in order to lay the right foundation for the marriage. And that comes from Deuteronomy 24, 5. It says this, If a man has recently married, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year, is he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he was married. Sound good, ladies? To lay that foundation for a marriage. So you get married, you get a year off to be together, and specifically for for the groom, to make his wife happy. You see, the power of this is that Jesus takes these customs and these traditions to explain what he's doing. Because Jesus is inviting you to a wedding. And you are the bride. Because on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took a cup and he gave thanks for it. And he gave it to his disciples and he said, this cup I offer to you, in effect saying, I love you and I offer you my life. Will you marry me? And he paid the bride price with his blood. He paid the highest cost because the bride was particularly valuable. And if you've said yes to Jesus, you are a part of this. You are spoken for. You are set apart. You have been bought with a price. And now we wait as he prepares a place for us. Jesus is with his disciples at one point. He actually uses this very, uh, this very idea. He says this, "'Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me that you also may be where I am.'" And someday he'll be ready. The place will be set. The day and the hour will come. And the Father's approval will be given. And our bridegroom will return. He will bring his wedding party, a realm of angels with light, light, lightning and fire and shouts and trumpets, to announce that the bridegroom has returned. The wedding feast is here Hear this in Matthew 4 as he explains the last days. He says this, For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And he will send his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heavens to the other. Or in 2 Thessalonians 1 when he says this, this, or when Paul says this, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. You see, they will gather with candles lit. And Jesus is preparing this place for you. So the question is, are we preparing ourselves? Jesus tells another story about ten virgins, ten unmarried, ten attendants, and he says this in the passage. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five of them were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. The wise one, however, took oil in their jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight... The cry rang out, Here is the bridegroom! Come out to meet him! And all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give me some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy yourself some. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. The question is, will we be ready? Will we be ready? The wedding feast will be the high point of the celebration, and to miss that, well, to miss everything. Our passage this morning, when I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like a roar of rushing water and like loud p- pails of thunder shouting hallelujah for our Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, were given to her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Which leads us with two questions. Number one, are you invited? Are you invited? Jesus looks at you with love in his eyes and offers you a cup. This cup I offer you. I offer you my life. Will you marry me? He has already paid the bride price for you, the highest price on the cross, because you are that valuable. Do you know the bridegroom? Have you allowed him to pay the bride price? Are you known as one who is bought with a price? And if you haven't given him an answer yet, he's waiting. Will you say yes? And if you have said yes, If you have accepted that cup, are you ready? I'll invite the band to come up as we close. If you have said yes, are you ready? When you go to a wedding, there's this moment. I don't know if you remember, but there's this moment when everyone rises and the door swings open and the bride enters the room. Now at that point, most people turn around to look at the back of the door to see the bride walk in. But when I go to a wedding, I don't look for the bride. I'm going to see the bride, and she's going to be lovely, and she's going to be beautiful. But in that moment, I look at the groom. Because there is something mystical. There is something hauntingly beautiful about seeing a groom look at his bride for the first time. Something unimaginably beautiful when she walks in and the groom sees her for the first time. Friends, I want Jesus to look at me like that. I want to walk into his glory someday. And that look I see on groom's face, faces when the bride walks in for the first time, friends, I want Jesus to look at me like that. And so I want to be ready. I want to bathe in baptism and allow the Holy Spirit to direct my steps. I want to be anointed in prayer. I want to be clothed and crowned in righteousness. And the passage says that our white garments will be our righteous acts. And earlier in Revelation, it tells us that to those who are faithful, I will give you the crown of life. See, I want to have enough oil in my lamp so that when he comes, he'll know I'm ready. I'm ready. And when I fail, and I will fail at this, I rest in the fact that the bride price has already been paid. It is finished. There is nothing you can do to make Him love you less. But I want to be ready. Tonight during our Christmas Eve service, we'll close with the singing of Silent Night and we'll light a candle. And when our community comes and lights those candles together, I'll be picturing us in heaven with candles lit. Because tonight... And over this season, we anticipate, we look forward to, we celebrate that Jesus has come. But there's also a deep longing for the fact that Jesus is still yet to come. There's this deep need, there's this deep wound, there's this deep hole in our life, in our world, that knows Jesus has come and yet he's coming back. And so when we gather tonight, I like to think. And as I look around the room, I'm going to imagine us with our candles lit. Waiting for our bridegroom and celebrating when he returns. That as we sing and as we gather with our lights, that that image of the festival, of the feast that will never end. And the year of rest that will go on forever. And so we'll sing with candles lit. Let's pray. God, a holy night 2,000 years ago, you came to initiate a relationship with us. You came. To find us, to seek us, to save us, to pay the bride price, so that we might be in relationship with you, and we will sing with all of our hearts that you have come, and that we are we have been bought with a price. But Lord, there's still longing as we wait for you, our bridegroom, to come back. So, Lord, help us to be ready. Help us to say yes to you, to bathe in that baptism of the Holy Spirit, to be, to be guided, and to be nurtured, and to be moved and directed by you. To be anointed in prayer, lifting up ourselves, lifting up others, lifting up our church, lifting up our world. And, Lord, may we be clothed in righteousness. May we be clothed in a way that sets us apart because of your goodness and your love. Lord, may we have enough oil in our lamps. And Lord, we celebrate tonight that you have come and you will come again. So our lamps are lit, our candles are on, and we anticipate you, Jesus. We thank you. Our bridegroom, our friend, the one who has bought us for a price. We look forward to that wedding feast someday, God. May it be so, and may we be ready. In your name I pray.